0: One of the key slogans of our age is that love is love. It was used especially around the campaign for introducing same-sex marriage. But it appeals to a bigger idea. The idea that it doesn't matter who you're in a relationship with. All that matters is that you love one another. Each one of us should be free to act upon our feelings, regardless of the consequences. Rebecca McLaughlin in her book Secular Creed argues that love is love is one of these kind of five slogans that have become a kind of secular creed within our society. A statement that puts all arguments to rest and is most and must be believed absolutely or you risk being excluded from society. And yet the Bible's teaching on relationships seems to oppose this love is love thinking. The Bible tells us that it does matter who you love, that God cares about who we date or who we marry, that we're not free to just do what we like, that the God who designs us, who loved us, who cares for us, has determined what is right and what is wrong in all areas of life, even when it comes to relationships. Now far too often, the church today, when faced with our world's idea, the secular creeds, and faced with what the church has traditionally taught, compromises and isn't clear on what God requires from his people today. And sadly, we've seen that over the last couple of weeks in the Church of England, where the church has not changed its doctrine on marriage. Marriage is still between one man and one woman. The same sex couples can come to church and give thanks for the civil marriage or partnership that they have entered into and receive God's blessing. It's a contradictory compromise and no one is actually satisfied with this. You can read the liberals who think this is completely ridiculous that the church would bless the union but not conduct the marriage. And the evangelicals who ask, how on earth can the church bless something which God has said is wrong? Compromise just doesn't work. It doesn't appeal to anyone. Rather than compromising with the world, the church is called to follow God's word, to call people to a costly obedience to support everyone who is struggling in many areas of, of what the Bible teaches through compassion and grace and humility, but also to be clear on what is right and what is wrong. So as I say, we're called to do this humbly. We're called to recognize that every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us fails in God's standards. But that doesn't mean that we simply change or depart from God's word to suit what we want. Rather, God's word is eternal. God's word has been given for our good. And so we seek to follow it. Rebecca McLaughlin, who wrote that book, Secular Creed, tells of a time she was invited to speak in a church in Missouri on sexuality and gender. and An LGBT plus leader organised a protest against her. She engaged with this leader on Twitter and eventually arranged to meet them for coffee. The leader explains that given the high suicide rates amongst LGBT plus youth, she was concerned that what Rebecca had to say wouldn't be safe. How would you answer such a criticism? that the Bible's view on sexuality, gender, on relationships, on life, isn't safe. Rebecca said she didn't know what to say, but she said this, Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. It isn't safe. It reminds me of Susan's question in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She finds out that Aslan, this figure who is the Jesus-like figure of the book, is a lion. And she says, uh, so she's told Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God's word should challenge us. But we also have to remember that it is good. Because God is good. He designed us and knows what's best for us. So as we look together at God's word, we will be challenged. We will find things that we struggle to understand or to accept. But we must go with God's word, not our own word. We must recognise that God hasn't given us his word in order to be a killjoy, in order to punish us. He's given us his word because he knows what's best for us. The opinions and ideas of our society change from time to time. But God is constant. His word is constant a guide for how we should live in all times, all places. And the same kind of issues that were relevant in the Old Testament, relevant in the New Testament, are still relevant today. There are some challenges in how we we apply this. The passage that we just read in Genesis 24 is perhaps quite a difficult passage for us to apply today in the 21st century. Abraham sends his servant off to find a wife for his son. That isn't how we normally approach relationships today. And I don't think we're being asked to import those kind of cultural elements of the kind of arranged marriage into 21st century Scotland. But that doesn't mean the passage is irrelevant to us. That doesn't mean the considerations or the principles in this passage don't show us how God would have us to approach relationships. It shows us the qualities that we should be seeking in a spouse. And at the same time, I think even for those of us who are already married or who are not thinking about marriage, the passage shows us a model for how to approach any challenging, serious decision in our lives. And so this morning I want to look at this model and then as we come to the third part of the model, we'll kind of think more in depth about what it teaches specifically about marriage. The first thing we see is that we're to commit the matter to prayer, we're to trust God's providence and then we're to consider what God requires of us And as I say, we'll specifically look at that point about the the issue of marriage that we see in this passage. So commit the matter to prayer is the first point. There's a joke that goes around amongst teachers that the way to mark essays is to take the pile of essays and throw them down the stairs. The heavier papers, the ones that will have most citations, most research, will go further down the stairs. And so you give those papers an A. The lighter ones, the shorter ones, will be at the top and get a D. Most of us would never do this, I hope. But we sometimes make decisions in our lives with the same kind of lightheartedness. We just kind of go for it. We just kind of see what we're going to do and we just, we just make a decision quickly without thinking about it. By contrast, God's word encourages us to walk in the ways of God. We've seen that in the life of Abraham for his life. He sought to follow God. He didn't always get it right but he grew in his faith, and over the last couple of chapters in particular, we've seen his faith come into fruition. Our decisions in life need to be made with careful thought, and most importantly with God's guidance. And we especially need that guidance in the significant decisions of life. In Genesis 24, we come to a major life decision. Who will be Isaac's wife? Abraham takes great care over this decision. He entrusts it to his servant. Now, as Sheila read Genesis 24, you were probably thinking this is quite long. And Genesis 24 is actually the longest chapter in the book of Genesis. A lot happens in the chapter, but you also have noticed there's a lot of repetition for emphasis, where um, the servant, for example, tells Rebecca's family all that had happened, when we already know that from the beginning of the chapter. So we're not necessarily going to go through it all in a lot of detail. We're going to go through it quickly at times in order to get the sense of what is going on. The passage begins with Abraham's concern For Isaac to have a wife and notice he wants the right kind of wife. We'll come back to what that means later but he wants the right kind of wife. It's important to fulfill the promises of God that his son shouldn't marry one of the Canaanites. So Abraham sends off his senior servant to the ancestral home ground to find a wife among his own relatives. His determination here is made clear by the oath that he makes the servant swear by placing his hand under his thigh. A typical way of taking an oath in the ancient world, not the way we would typically take oaths today. But notice this oath is in the name of the God of heaven and the God of earth. This idea that uh, the universality of Abraham's God is being emphasized. He's not just the God of the promised land. He's the God of the whole world. And so the servant goes off back to where Abraham has come from. The servant asks, what will happen if I don't find this wife or she won't come And Abraham says, in those circumstances, Isaac must not leave the promised land because this is where God has told them to be. He reiterates the divine promise of this land, the oath made to Abraham from God, and that this promise will pass to Isaac. But he believes that God will prepare a way, that the servant will be successful in this journey. This is again Abraham's faith, his confidence in God being demonstrated. But this passage isn't really about Abraham's faith. We've already seen that all through Genesis as we've got to this point. This passage is really about what the servant does. So the servant heads off. He takes with him many gifts and things that are needed eh, for the bridal price. And he arrives at a well. And he goes about trying to find the right woman for Isaac. And how does he do that? He prays. The servant prayerfully derives a test in order to identify the appropriate mate for Isaac. And he said... my master. Now reading this, you might begin by thinking that this is how we should make difficult decisions. We pray about it, we set up a test for God, and he will meet the conditions that we set. That's what's sometimes called putting out a fleece, coming from the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6, where Gideon requests God's guarantee of victory through two tests. In the first test, he puts out a fleece garment on the ground and asks God to miraculously cause dew to only be collected on the garment, not on the rest of the ground. And in the second test, he reverses it, asking for the fleece to be dry and for the ground to be covered in dew. And so maybe this is how we should approach decision-making. Put out fleeces, have these kind of tests of God. But I don't think that's what's going on in Genesis 24. You see, Gideon's fleece tests were miraculous tests. He was asking God to do a miracle in order to prove something. There's perhaps very specific reasons in the life of Gideon why he was doing this, but I don't think that's a model for normal life, that we ask, we pray, and then we ask God to do some miraculous thing so that we um, know if we're doing the right thing. By contrast, the servant's test in Genesis 20... Oh, by contrast, uh, go, yeah, go back to the right one. By contrast, the servant's test is more like looking for the right door to be opened. His test is not looking for some kind of prophetic sign from God. What the servant is asking for is that the right person, the person of the right character, would come to him. The girl who comes to the well and will draw water, or will offer him a drink, i.e. she'll be hospitable, and she'll offer water to his camels. She'll be self-sacrificial. She'll be generous with her time and energy. This is the character of the person who Isaac should marry, someone who's hospitable, sacrificial who cares for others. This kind of prayer is really looking that God would open the right door. It's asking for guidance, yes. It's asking for God to make the plans succeed, as we all should be praying. But it's not saying, do it in this miraculous way. It's simply asking that these things, the right character would come to him. So it's not a test in the way that we think of the fleece test. Rather, it's about looking for which doors open and which doors are closed. And that's the way in which we follow God's um, direction in our lives. And immediately, the servant receives his answer, which takes us then to part two, trusting in God's providence. He has prayed this prayer looking for God to do something for the right circumstances to come together. And the way that happens is through God's providence. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebecca who was born to Bethel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nehu, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled up her jar and came up. God answers the servant's prayer even before he's finished praying it. The narrator then presents us with Rebecca, tells us that her family connections, that she is someone from the right family, from the right place that she is related to Abraham and also that she is beautiful and that she is a virgin. Rebecca not only passes the tests that the servant set for choosing a wife for Isaac, but she surpasses expectations. Then the servant, verse 17, Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Now do you notice the emphasis here that she quickly did these things? This was her willing service. She wasn't doing this begrudgingly. This shows her character. He doesn't even have to ask about the camels when she volunteers to water the camels because God is exceeding the servant's expectations. And during the whole process, the servant watches wordlessly to see if the Lord would prosper his journey. I think his hesitation is because he doesn't yet know what we know. He hasn't yet asked her whose daughter she is. We know already that she is from the right family. She's the one, though, who completes the task, who does what the servant had prayed, and the servant bestows gifts upon her and goes to have hospitality with the family. The servant at this point then is certain when he finds out that she is the daughter um, or the niece of Abraham. She is certain at this point that God has answered his prayers. So how does he respond? He praises God. He worships God. The man bowed his head and worshipped God and said, "Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house." of my master's kingsman. The servant recognizes God is the one who led him, that his prayer has led to God's leading in his life, what we call often God's providence, the fact that God directs our steps, that he has a plan that we cannot see. The Bible is clear that God is in control of all things and works out his plans for good. Romans 8 verse 28 tells us, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. And this is what we see working out in practicality in Genesis 24. Just think about it. In order for God to fulfil the servant's prayer, Rebecca had to have already left, even before he prayed it, in order to go to the well and meet the servant. We are called to pray. Prayer is an important part of our relationship with God. But God is working all throughout time to bring about his purposes. God works through history for his own glory. The servant sees this and he worships God for his providence. We sometimes think of God's sovereignty as God's providence, as a problem to be solved, as something that we don't quite understand and we don't. But our response shouldn't be to, to question and kind of dig into it in a way that confuses us. Our response should be to worship God for his goodness to us, that he has acted in history, that we can trust that he will act in our lives. The servant then repeats most of the story um, to laban and to the rest of rebecca's family telling them what that this is all god's doing and laban and the family also recognize in verse 50 that this is god's work this thing has come from the lord we not cannot speak to you bad or good behold rebecca is before you take her and go and let her be the wife of your master's son as the lord has spoken so all of this helps us to see the way that we too, when making difficult decisions, challenging decisions, should be praying, committing the matter to God, but trusting also that God in his providence will overrule matters to bring about his good purposes in our lives. He has a plan, even though we don't understand it at times. This is how God works. Doors are closed, doors are opened, depending on God's will for our lives. But it's also the case that sometimes... Doors are not closed to us because we couldn't walk through them if we wanted to. Sometimes doors are closed to us because God has given us direction in his word as to how we should walk. And that takes us to our final point. So sometimes providence intervenes in the way to stop us doing things that God doesn't want us to do, even things that we might think of as good. But sometimes we are the ones who are called to close the door because of what God's word requires of us. Which takes us to our third point, consider what God requires. In any decision, it's vital that we pray. It's vital that we trust God's providence. But it's also vital that we look at the Bible. We look at God's word and see what it requires of us. Now that isn't something that's particularly easy to do in our world today. Our world encourages us to pursue our authentic selves, to make decisions that we want to make. Whereas the Bible teaches us that God is in control and he is the one we owe our obedience to. Many in the world think that the Bible's teaching is at best out of date and irrelevant and at worst bigoted and hateful. But if God is God, if he made us, if he created us, then surely he does know what is best for us. And so we should take seriously how he instructs us to live our lives, for his glory and for our good, to be holy people of God. One area, of course, where it can be difficult to live out God's will or God's way is in the area of relationships. Our society has changed uh, in many ways from Genesis 24. As we thought about at the beginning, our society tells us that love is love, and nothing should get in the way of that. And of course, though, the truth is that none of us really believe that. Because we don't believe it's okay to marry our brother or sister. We don't believe it's okay for an older person to take advantage of a child. In the past, we might have said it isn't right to marry multiple people at once. Although in recent years, even our society's views on that seems to be shifting. But the point is that none of us think there are no limits to love. So love is love becomes a kind of meaningless statement. Each one of us is actually arbitrarily deciding what we, where we think the limits lie. We're appealing to our own views, our own feelings at times, rather than appealing to something greater than ourselves. But the Bible, by contrast, calls us not to just do what we feel is right, what we think is right, but instead to trust our God, to see his word and what he tells us. As a Christian, I choose to submit to the higher authority of God's word because I'm completely ill-equipped to make decisions based purely on what I want. I often want things that are wrong. I want things that are harmful. Each one of us is like this. So each one of us needs to appeal to God's word and what he requires in our relationships. And in many ways, that's what this passage is truly about. Abraham is concerned that his son Isaac will marry the right woman. And for him, the right woman is not a Canaanite. Canaanites, after all, did not worship his God. They worshiped false gods like Baal and the Asherah. It was Abraham's descendants who were to receive the promised land from the Canaanites because in due time their sin would reach its full measure and God would judge them, according to Genesis 15. Thus, Abraham sends his servant to find a proper wife, Isaac. Now you might think that Abraham's instructions are just about ethnic purity or even racism, but it isn't that. The key to understand what's going on here is the proper worship of the true God and the character of the woman is what Abraham cares about. We have seen that Abraham was not just interested in any woman, but one who had the proper character as revealed in the test that the servant devised. Now, as time goes on in the, in the Old Testament, there will be examples of non-Israelite women marrying into the family of God. And they will be important women in the story of redemption. We have Rahab. We have Ruth. Prime examples of people who were out with God's people who are brought in. Because this is not about racism. This is not about ethnic purity. But these foreigners who marry into the redemptive line are mentioned because they are important in the history of redemption. They show us the way in which other people are welcome into God's family. And they show us actually through their extraordinary faith the way in which God worked in their lives and in ours. Later though, in Ezra and Nehemiah, they will challenge the Jewish men who are divorcing their Jewish wives in order to remarry foreign women. But they don't do this because the women are foreign. They do it because the foreign women do not share the worship of God. The women are drawing people away from the worship of God. So can we learn anything about marriage from Genesis 24 and the other accounts of marriage in Genesis? Well, we must be very careful here. We don't simply assume continuity between the practices of arranged marriages. The culture that we see here is not the kind of culture we have today. And sometimes when we, when we jump, when we, we can go too far when we're reading the Bible and trying to import the culture to us today, or we can draw very unhelpful conclusions. I actually read one commentary on this passage, that concluded by saying this there's a right person that god has prepared for you if you haven't found that person yet keep praying and trusting in him it's worth the wait is that the message of this passage of course not that gives us completely the wrong idea of marriage that idolizes marriage it makes marriage into the ideal thing that we all must attain to and if we haven't well we're somehow defective that's not what the passage is saying this passage It's not about us finding a way by prayer that we will definitely find the person that we want. Our passage is not about idolising marriage, but it is about saying that if we are pursuing marriage, there are biblical principles that we must bear in mind. Most importantly, Abraham wants Isaac to marry someone who shares his most fundamental values, someone who shares his faith in God. So he sends his servant out of Cana to his homeland to find a godly woman, a woman of character, Proverbs 31 verse 30 tells us, Charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And that characteristic, that crucial attitude towards God is seen on the other side as well, where the psalm that we sung, 112 verse 1, shows us how important it is that the man as well fears the Lord. Praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commands. It's with this background but we then come to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 to 18. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. The passage is not specifically necessarily about marriage, but the principles, of course, apply to marriage, any intimate human relationship. It would be unimaginable that Paul would not have included marriage here. And notice he's drawing on the same Old Testament ideas, those who worship idols, false gods, and those who worship God, that these things coming together will create conflict, will create problems. So it might be unpopular to say this today, but the Bible's clear that a believer should marry someone who is also a believer. Common sense tells us, of course, that if a couple doesn't share the most basic, important, life-shaping relationship with God, then there can be challenges in that relationship. True intimacy actually becomes difficult. There can be strains in the relationship. If one's relationship to God is central to your life, but you don't share that with the other person who's most important in your life, there can be issues. If decisions in life have to be made, with God at the centre, there can be conflict. One person will want to follow God's word, the other one might not. At best, the unbelieving spouse might tolerate or be respectful, and that's great when they are. But perhaps they will just choose to treat it like a separate part of the believer's life. It's clear, though, when you read Genesis 24, in the context of the whole Bible, that we should be encouraged not to be marrying believers with unbelievers. Now, that does not mean there are not situations that have already arisen where that has occurred. And in those situations, God is gracious. God blesses such relationships and can even use them as a means of drawing people to himself. But the ideal that the Bible holds up for us, the model that the Bible presents for us, is that it is right for a believer to marry a believer. And that not just any believer, actually, Someone who displays a character that is consistent with their faith. That's what we see in Rebecca. She's someone who is living out her belief in God by the way she's hospitable, by the way she's generous with her time and resources. Now, if that requirement that someone is a believer is challenging, there are also other challenging aspects to this passage. One of them is Abraham's role. As I've said, I don't think we're meant to have arranged marriages today But I think it is a principle in the Bible. It is something that we probably don't want to hear, but it is a principle in the Bible that our parents should be advising us, giving us counsel in our marriages and our relationships. Now, if your parents are not believers, then maybe they might have counsel that you don't think is as valid as godly parents. But if your parents have a strong objection to your fiancé or someone that you're going out with, we should listen to them we should think carefully about what they have to say to us. They often have wisdom that we lack, especially when we are in the passion of romantic love. And it's interesting that as countercultural as that seems today, there's a, a woman, Louise Perry, who's a feminist. She's not a Christian, but she's recently written a fascinating book. It's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, a new guide for sex in the 21st century. And her last chapter in the book is called listen to your mother. Her book is exploring common beliefs of our age from a feminist perspective to show why our society's views today are actually harmful, particularly to women. Her conclusion is really that the sexual revolution has been great for men, not so much for women. She writes, the technology, sh- the technological shock of the pill led sexual liberals to the hubristic assumption that our society could be uniquely free from the oppression of sexual norms and could function fine. The last 60 years have proved that assumption to be wrong. We need to re-erect the social guardrails that we have been torn down. And in order to do that, we must start by stating the obvious. Sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. Loveless sex is not empowering. People are not products. Marriage is good. For someone who's writing as a non Christian from a feminist perspective, to reach these conclusions, which are in keeping with the biblical view of relationships, challenges our social norms today. Not everyone in our society thinks that what has bought into the lie of these, of these lies, these kind of wrong ways of thinking about sex and relationships. Now, she may or may not be right, but she's done research in order to back that up. But we, of course, know that she's more right than she realises, because all truth is God's truth. And what she says accords with what the Bible has been saying for thousands of years. And, of course, the other important principle in Genesis 24 that we mustn't forget, and the bit that people probably will like a bit more, is that it's a healthy part of relationships to have desire and attraction that marriage is the right place for expressing sexual intimacy. Notice what when Rebecca comes to see Isaac, we see their love for one another. Isaac went out to meditate in the field towards evening and he lifted up his eyes and saw and behold, there were camels coming and Rebecca lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Rebecca, eh, when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is the man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it's my master. So she took her veil, covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is a picture that shows us the clear attraction and love between these two. In fact, we see that earlier with the emphasis on her beauty, on the fact that she is uh, attractive, When Rebecca is informed of the identity of Isaac, she covers up, demonstrating her modesty. But you get the sense in this passage that she has seen this man and she is attracted to him. Isaac took her into the tent of his now deceased mother, Sarah, and this is the location where they then consummated their relationship. While this is an arranged marriage, the passage makes clear that Isaac loved her and found comfort in their relationship. But what's interesting is that marriage here is the foundation for love. Love is not the foundation for marriage. Isaac and Rebecca are married, and then we read that Isaac loved her. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we shouldn't believe in romantic love, but you can't build a marriage on romantic love. When you do, if conflict develops and you don't feel in love anymore, you just want to leave. But if you build love on the foundation of marriage commitment, then you can weather whatever comes your way. In the Bible, we're commanded to love our spouse whether we feel like we love them or not. When things are challenging, we make a commitment to love one another. So we see some key ideas in God's word that is to help us direct our relationships. But as we've already touched on, perhaps you feel these things don't apply to you. Maybe you are already married to an unbeliever. But in such a situation, the Apostle Paul gives us hope that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified through the believing spouse that the believing spouse should stay with their spouse unless it's the spouse that leaves the relationship. I don't think that means that the spouse is automatically saved, but I think it does mean there's hope that the influence of a believing husband or a believing wife can be used by God to bring the unbeliever to faith. And it's also good for the children to be raised in that home with a believing parent. We need to constantly remember in prayer those in our church who are married to unbelievers and the challenges that that brings. And then, of course, there are some of us who will never get married, either by choice or because in God's providence, it never happened for us. And that can be really challenging. But the Bible is also clear that singleness can be used for God's glory. Paul says to the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And I think at times the church has been guilty of this idea of treating marriage like the aim of life, that we've arrived if we've somehow achieved a marriage or act like all our satisfaction, all our contentment, all our happiness should come from our marriages. But the church should never act like this because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the most important relationship is not between us and our spouse, but between us and God. The Bible teaches that actually the family that matters most is the family of the church, God's people. The Bible's clear that our sense of true satisfaction and joy does not come from our marriage to our earthly spouse. But marriage is used in the Bible as an image to reflect our relationship with Jesus. In Ephesians five we read, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. All of us make mistakes. All of us fail God in all areas of our life. That's what the Bible calls sin. But Jesus came to redeem us from that, dying in our place on the cross so that we can be redeemed, purchased by his blood. And now he is the source of our satisfaction, the source of our joy. He is our husband and the church is the bride. Human husbands and human wives, however godly they are, will let us down. But Jesus will never let us down. That's why our first love is to be Jesus. And that's what empowers us, enables us to follow his commands and his word, the Bible, even when we find that challenging, even when that means we have to give something up that we really want. That's why we pray to him for help. That's why we trust in his providence. That's why we seek to follow his word, because we know that God loves us, that he's shown us this love. He's proven this love through Jesus' death and resurrection, and that he will help us to face whatever challenges we have living in this world. And if you're not yet a believer, you may find a lot of this deeply challenging. It probably goes against the grain of everything you've been taught. But if God made you, he does have a plan for how you should live. And he invites you to follow him. First by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus for your salvation. By praying, trusting his providence and then seeking his help to live out his word. We don't have to get everything right before we come to Jesus. Jesus is the one who actually empowers us and enables us to believe his word and to follow it through his spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for your word. We know that your word challenges so much in our culture, so much in our ways of thinking. We know that in many ways, we, even as your people, have been infected by wrong thinking in many of these areas. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a boldness to speak your truth, to stand up for what is right, but also a compassion and a love and a humility for all the people that we encounter who are made in your image. We know that these things are deeply challenging, are very difficult for us to talk about in society, for us to even live them out. But we pray that you would help each one of us that you would help us to show care and concern for all people that we encounter. Help us to show the goodness of your word. That you tell a better story of how you are for your people, how you've loved us and died for us and how we therefore want to follow you out of gratitude for all your goodness to us and we pray for any who don't yet know you that you would help them to come to know you for themselves and help them to overcome even some of the barriers in their lives that might be holding them back from trusting you we ask this in jesus name and for his sake amen